0: Thanks for joining us at the Chapel Online. My name is Steve Elworth. I'm the sending director here at the Chapel. And that means I get to be a part of helping those in our body be sent into ministry around the country and around the world. And it is a joy to be with you uh, wherever you're watching this. Uh, We've taken a slight detour over the last uh, month because of hurricanes in Louisiana, because of Hurricane Ida because of chaos that's all around us. Uh, we wanted to take an opportunity to speak in such a way for the next for, for few weeks that we're able to turn our attention back on God. Because in chaos, it is easy to turn inward and just look at the things that are around us, look at our issues, look at our problems, and forget that sometimes when these situations happen, God would have us look upward. And that's what we want this little mini-series We're kind of calling the hurricane series to do to cause us to place our attention upward. One of the best definitions of worship that I know is attention. Just that one word, attention. What do you think about? What do you dream about? What do you stay awake at night thinking about? What do you sing about? What are the thoughts that occupy you throughout the day? Sometimes that's a good indication of in the moment what you are Worshiping. Worship songs in and of themselves are not worship. They are just tools to help us get our attention back on the one that is worthy of worship. And our enemy, Satan, has worship songs too. They're called push notifications and advertisements and billboards and anything that he can do to take our attention off of God. And we want this to be an opportunity for us to fix our attention back on the only one that is worthy of our worship. So next week, we're gonna start the series that we were planning on starting at the beginning of September. Uh, And it's a series that we're really excited about. It's called What You Need to Know, looking at the essential essential truths of Jesus, the things that we need to know. Because there's so often that people around us, people in the church, Christians on social media, will argue about so many different things, but there are a few things that we really need to focus in on so that we can love Jesus well. So tune in next week, we're really excited about this series. And we're gonna round off this little hurricane series that we've been doing, talking about the gospel, the message of Jesus, and how it causes us to change our relationships, change the way we interact Uh, with people. Uh, This gospel message will push us into this next series, and it's the reason why we're offering this next series, what we need to know, so that we can be immersed in who Jesus is, so that we can love him and love the world well. That's also why I'm wearing this shirt. Uh, You heard Kevin and I already talking about it, but we have a live sent conference coming up for the same purpose, because we want the gospel not just to change our lives, not just to change our community, but to change the whole world. So I really want to encourage you uh, to come to that. But today, as we round off this series, I want to introduce a word, uh, really a couple words that our staff has been kicking around over the last few weeks. And, and it's this, gospel fluency. We got that from a book of the same title by a pastor and author named Jeff Vanderstelt. And Jeff's definition of gospel fluency is this, speaking the truths of Jesus into the everyday stuff of life. I love that definition because so often, if we're honest, the truths of Jesus are the things we sing about and learn about on Sundays, but they don't always change the everyday stuff of life. And we wanna be a gospel-fluent church, a church where we're speaking the gospel, the message of Jesus into the everyday stuff around us. So we're gonna be talking about the gospel a lot today, but first I wanna talk about fluency. Now we're all familiar with the idea of fluency. Normally we talk about it when it comes to language, but but really fluency is just the things you do without having to think, because you've done it so much, speaking your native language fluently. But there's more than just language. We are fluent in getting ready in the morning. We're fluent at brushing our teeth. We don't have to think about it anymore. We're fluent at driving a car or at least some of us. I, I don't know about all of the, all the drivers in Baton Rouge. Um, but fluency is really important because words have meaning and those words and that meaning shape the things and the situations that we find ourselves in. So take a look at this video. Das hier ist mein Sektor. Das the ist das wichtigste Gerät des Küstenwächter. Das Gerät, das Gerät. Überlebensradar. Mm. Hello, this is the German Coast Guard. We're thinking, we're thinking. What are you thinking about? I love that video. Fluency is so important. Now, I used to feel very confident about my language, my English fluency. Uh, I grew up in Chicago, that's why I have this silky smooth uh, accent, Uh, but I married a Rustin girl, so I have a cross-cultural relationship. And I'll never forget, in the first few months of our marriage, we were living in Illinois, and we were trying to figure out how we were gonna move our stuff from one apartment to another. And we're driving down one day, I remember exactly where we are, and we look at each other and we say, well, why don't we just rent a truck? In order to move our stuff and, and amber looks at me and says well a truck is a really good idea but in order to save some money why don't we just borrow a truck from one of your friends confused i, I look over at her and say well, i don't think any of my friends have a truck i could hear some agitation starting to rise in her voice and she says well, i know a lot of your friends that have a truck really because i said i don't know anyone the agitation is now rising in my voice would you just name one of my friends that has a truck and now she's starting to get more agitated and she starts listing off all of these friends of mine that uh, that have a truck and we're getting heated over this and finally she just stops and she starts to laugh and she looks at me and says okay yankee when you say truck what do you mean I take a deep breath, and I say, well, a moving van or, you know, something with a big trailer on the back so we can put all of our stuff in. And she said, hey, when we move to Louisiana, one thing that's important for you to know, when we say truck, we're talking about a pickup truck in Louisiana. But we just don't say pickup truck. It is a truck. Y'all, we got heated over an English word that we both understand. Now, you might not be in a cross-cultural marriage, but I would imagine in your marriage you've had similar instances where you're missing each other even though you're both fluent in that language, but take it a step further. What if you're in another language that you don't fully understand? Now I remember taking Spanish in middle school and high school and I always did pretty well. I always got an A in my Spanish classes, but really I just speak Spanglish. Put me in an interaction with somebody who speaks Spanish and I have no chance. Uh, Actually, last week, somebody came to our church from Ecuador looking for information on our ESL classes, English is a second language that, uh, that we have here at the church. And I was trying to use some of my Spanish words to communicate, but it was clear that we were missing each other. Her English wasn't good enough, my Spanish wasn't good enough. Uh, so I went and had to get a, a flyer so that I could show her the words. I was even trying to say Tuesday, but I've lived in Louisiana too long, so I said Mardi instead of Martes. And I am realizing, man, I can get pass a test in Spanish. But i can't have a conversation now what happens when that transfers to the gospel what happens when we don't speak gospel we speak gospel ish what happens when we pass a test in the gospel but can't have a conversation we might have good answers and a bunch of Bible verses we can spout out, but when it comes to speaking the truths of Jesus or the everyday stuff of life, I'm not sure that we always know how those truths don't just change our eternity, but they change everything about our lives today. Now, the best way to become fluent in anything is to practice And that's what we wanna do here at the chapel. We wanna be a gospel fluent community that speaks the gospel to each other and over each other and into the everyday stuff of life. So today we're gonna be looking at a short letter that Paul wrote to one man named Philemon, speaking to a specific cultural situation. And what I want us to see is how Paul speaks the gospel into an everyday, although sticky situation, that Philemon finds himself in. So let me pray for us. God, I pray uh, for all those who are joining me from wherever they are, knowing that everyone has something in their life that uh, is causing hurt and pain, maybe joy, so many things going on. And I pray that in these next moments, you would allow us to turn our attention back on you as we look at the gospel of Jesus, the message of life. So if there's anything that I've planned to say that's not of you, would you take it out of my mind? If there's anything that you wanna say that I've not even thought of, would you come and speak? Because we wanna hear you, even if we're in a car or on a couch or in a bed or on a treadmill, would you come and speak? In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I'm gonna read the entire uh, letter for us. It's, it's not that long, it's only one chapter. If you have your Bibles, you can go and find it. The table of contents is your friends, because it's only on one page. It's in between Hebrews and Titus, but the words will also be on the screen. So I'm gonna go ahead and read this for us. And it starts in verse one like this. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, Also to Afia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is as none other than Paul, an old man, now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains, "'Formerly he was useless to you, "'but now he has become useful both to you and to me. "'I am sending him who is my very heart back to you. "'I would have liked to keep him with me "'so that he could take your place "'in helping me while I'm in chains for the gospel. "'But I didn't want to do anything without your consent "'so that any favor that you would do "'would not seem forced, but would be voluntary. "'Perhaps the reason he was separated from you "'for a little while was that you might have him back forever, "'no longer as a slave.'" but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He's a very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very self. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And one more thing, prepare a guest room for me because I hope to be restored to you and answer to your prayers. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demos and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Now, what a great personal Letter Now, most of the letters that Paul wrote were to a whole church or to a pastor of a church, generally about many things, but this is the only one that he wrote to one guy named Philemon. He was part of the church of Colossae, so he would also be reading the letter to the Colossians. Now, we don't know a lot about Philemon, but we know that he was a host and a leader of one of the house churches there in Colossae we also know that he was kind he was welcoming people spoke very well of him we also know that he was wealthy and we know this because he had a house big enough where house church could meet there but he also had servants Onesimus was one of Philemon's bondservants your translation might say slave now, anytime we hear the word slave here in our cultural time and place, we have visions of brutality and dehumanizing. So a little bit of context is important here. The Greek word doulos, which is translated as either slave or servant or bond can have a wide range of meanings. Doesn't necessarily mean the brutal, violent, dehumanizing act of slavery that we can see in our own recent past But in the Roman world, many who were referred to as doulos were actually under a voluntary contract for seven years, bonded to a master. That's where we get the word bondservant. And after that seven years, they would be freed and given all their wages. Now, this doesn't mean that people weren't treated badly. It doesn't mean that there were human rights violations, but we can't simply read our understanding of slave here. So that's important as we go forward. It's also important to note that Paul is not making a moral judgment on slavery in this letter. He is simply speaking into a specific situation that existed with specific people that he happened to have a relationship with. Now back to Philemon and Onesimus, we don't know exactly what their relationship looked like. All we know is that Onesimus had gotten away somehow and he doesn't seem to want to go back there was some scenario in which it was an unsafe or toxic environment where Onesimus wanted to get out of. Now, as he was leaving, as he was getting away, Onesimus actually meets Paul while he's in prison. Paul shares the message of Jesus with him, and Onesimus puts his trust in Jesus. And it just so happens that Paul's also the one who led Philemon to faith in Jesus. And we find that at the end of the letter when he tells Philemon and reminds him that you owe your soul to me. So Paul has an interesting relationship with both of these men. He was the one who led both of them to Jesus. And this letter is under the the context of Paul telling Philemon, the slave master, that he is going to send Onesimus the slave back. Now that's a sticky situation in any culture. We should be asking the question, man, what should Philemon do? What should Onesimus do? What should Paul do? And there's a lot of different ways that we could answer that question, right? It depends on the lens that you're using to make decisions. If the lens that you're using is the law of the land, then Paul should send Onesimus back. Onesimus should be punished, made a slave again, and repay all of the economic loss that Philemon had. If you're looking at it through the lens of feelings or maybe what's fair, Paul should keep Onesimus with him not sending him back into a, a hard and toxic situation, and he would get to gain a friend and a, and a fellow coworker. If you look at this through the lens of human rights justice, and Paul should come down on Philemon and punish him for creating a situation that was not helpful and healthy for Onesimus. And I think most of us tend to use criteria like this when we make decisions and as we interact with people. What feels good? What benefits me? What's fair in this situation? What does the law say? What does the culture allow? What is best for my bottom line? But the question that I think we should be asking is, what would gospel fluency, what would the message of Jesus compel Paul, Philemon and Onesimus to do? That's the question that we need to be asking ourselves in every situation and every relationship that we find ourselves. What would the gospel compel me to do? The only problem is we tend to be more culturally fluent than gospel fluent. We tend to know more what is allowable in the culture and the world around us rather than what would Jesus have me do? So what's interesting is we get an actual look into a situation where Paul is using a gospel fluent lens to speak into a cultural situation. So there's a few things that I want us to take out to see how Paul did that. How did Paul urge these two men to react? Well, the first I wanna see is Paul urges redemption where there once was runaway. Listen to how he says it in Philemon 12. He says, I am sending him who is my very heart back to you I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I'm in chains for the gospel. Paul himself was a prisoner in jail at this time. But I did not want to do anything without your consent so that any favor you would do would not seem forced, but would be voluntary. Paul is sending Onesimus back. Think about that for a second. That seems so crazy and unfair, right? If he left for a specific reason, he was trying to get out of a bad situation and Paul sends him back. But listen to what Paul's saying. He says, Philemon, Onesimus, something has now changed. You both have now put your faith in Jesus and Jesus is giving you a new way to interact with each other. Onesimus had walls. He had lost time, he had lost dignity. Philemon had a legal right to punish Onesimus and regain the loss that was caused. It was a situation where redemption wouldn't normally happen, but in the gospel, in what Jesus had done for these men, Philemon and Onesimus had both been brought back into a right relationship with God. They had both been fully redeemed after causing more loss, more rebellion, against God than either had done to each other. And God, through his grace, brought them back. Redemption is a financial term. This is how Paul says it in his letter to the Colossians. And remember, Philemon would have been reading this as a member of the church in Colossae. He'd be reading both the letter to himself and to his church. And in chapter one, verse 13, Paul writes this, for he, talking about Jesus, has rescued us From the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of his son, whom he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. See, Paul is saying that once anyone who was not in Jesus, we were in the dominion of darkness. But through the death of Jesus, through his blood that was spilled, he brings us back, he purchases us and brings us into the kingdom of his son. What he's saying is in Jesus, both master and servant had been redeemed from the slave market. See, in the spiritual realities, both Philemon and Onesimus were in the slave market. Both were slaves to sin, slaves to desire, slaves to their culture slaves to ambition and Jesus spent his own life, his own blood to purchase these men back. So Paul sends Onesimus back, knowing that the gospel would empower them to have a different kind of relationship because something has now changed. Something more than economics is what they have in common. They now have a common master and his name is Jesus. See, through the lens of gospel fluency, those that have trusted in the work of Jesus have been redeemed purchased from the slave market if you have trusted in jesus that's your identity you've been transferred from the slave market into the kingdom of god's son and through that lens in our relationships and our decisions gospel fluency compels us to seek redemption no matter what someone has done no matter what they owe because there's in jesus there's redemption for them and there's redemption for us so Paul urges through the gospel redemption where there once was runaway. He also urges reconciliation where there once was hostility. Here's how he says it in the letter to Philemon. He says, perhaps the reason he was separated you from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave as a dear brother. It's not just their financial and economic situation that's changed. In Jesus, their relational status has changed. Because in the way things were, in the circumstances of their former relationship, there was only division. Both of these men had walls up. Onesimus had lost time in his life, dignity, dreams that he might have had as he was in whatever this bondage relationship looked like. But Philemon had built a, a life and a plan around his workforce. He had hopes and he had plans that Onesimus had to fit into. Both of them had a loss. Both of them had walls up. There was no earthly reason that they could ever have a relationship together. But in Jesus, every barrier between people had been obliterated because the barrier between people and God had been obliterated. The wall that once existed between humanity and God was so much higher and thicker and stronger than any wall that we've built between ourselves. And in Jesus, that wall between us and God is obliterated. And we get to cross from the kingdom, the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of His Son through faith in Him. Again, to the letter to the church in Colossae, Paul writes this, once you were alienated from God, you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. See, through the gospel, God has brought peace where there was once hostility between us and him. So because those walls are brought down, in Jesus, we can tear down every wall that is between us and others. And those walls that are between us and others, we're the ones that set them up. So what are some of those walls? Paul tells the church in Colossae, he says, here there's neither Gentile or Jew, ethnic division, circumcised or uncircumcised, religious division, barbarian or Scythian, which are class divisions, Jews would look down on these people, slave or free economic division, but Christ is all and is in all. Let me add a few in our cultural context. In Christ, there is neither black or white, Republican or Democrat, vaxer or anti vaxer masker or anti-masker. They are all one in Christ. Jesus died to unite that which we so often fight to tear apart. Gospel fluency destroys these walls so that we can stop yelling at each other. We can stop posting arguments on social media and fighting with each other when Jesus died to unite. In him, the walls are destroyed. And because of that, Paul sends Onesimus back, not to be a slave again, but rather to be a brother. So what wall do you need to tear down? The walls between you and God are gone. So through the power of the gospel, what walls do you need to tear down? What barriers do you need to step over? What would love compel you to do because you've been reconciled to God? So Paul urges Philemon that there should be redemption where there was runaway, there should be reconciliation where there was hostility. And then he tells us that there should be forgiveness where there once was cost. Here again what he says to Philemon. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. But if he's done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to my account. See, I think Paul knows this isn't a slam dunk. This isn't easy. We don't live in an ideal world. We will never drift towards living in light of the gospel. Living with gospel fluency is hard and it takes work. And every single time there is forgiveness, there's a cost. Between us and God, we can't receive forgiveness without it costing the death of his son. It would either cost us our soul, our life in separation from him or in his grace, it costs the death of his son. When we forgive someone, someone pays the cost. When we don't forgive, we make them suffer the punishment, either by exacting from them what they owe, punishing them, giving them the silent treatment, forcing repayment. But when we forgive, we choose to bear the cost ourselves and decide that we're not gonna punish and we're never gonna bring it up again. Either way, there's cost. Philemon lost assets and finances. Onesimus lost dignity and time. There was debt, there was cost. But in Jesus, both men had been forgiven. And not just forgiven, they were forgiven more than they would ever on their own be able to pay back. They were forgiven more than anyone on earth could ever do to them. In the gospel, they were forgiven. To the church in Colossae, Paul put it this way, when you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. Dead people don't make themselves alive. God comes in and breathes. And he says he forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross the forgiveness that god gives to us is of an infinite and eternal amount as we walk away from him in rebellion before he saves us we spend our life spinning in his face trying to be our own god sinning against an eternal and infinite god In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus tells a parable that tries to illustrate this of of two servants. And these two servants are both in debt. The first servant is in debt to the master and he owes 10,000 talents. That's 200,000 years of wages. A talent is 20 years wage. In today's dollars, $10 billion. An absurd amount that Who knows how he accrued and there's no way he'd be able to pay it back. And this servant falls on his face before the master and begs for mercy. And with a snap of the finger, the master says, in pity, you're forgiven, wipes the debt away. But as the story continues, Jesus says that this same servant went to another servant that owed him 100 denarii. Now a denarii is one day's wage. So 100 denarii, about $15,000, nothing to shake a stick at, but think about this. The guy that was just forgiven 73 million days wages goes and does a shakedown of a guy who owes him 100 days wages. So what Jesus is showing is how incredibly illogical it is for those that have been forgiven by an infinite and eternal God, not turning around and forgiving those who have wronged us. No matter what it is, we sinned against God worse. Doesn't make it easy, but in the gospel, we have both the power and the model. And Paul is so confident that the gospel will empower Philemon to forgive that he promises to pay the debt if there's any problems. There is so much that we could talk about in this book, but what I want us to see is Paul demonstrating how to use gospel fluency in an everyday cultural situation. Again, he's not advocating for slavery or making a moral judgment. He's speaking into a situation that already exists through people that he already knows. But what we can see is how do we place the lens of the gospel over our eyes so that we can make decisions and interact with people through the power of the message of Jesus. And the reality is through the lens of anything other than the gospel, this story makes no sense and is actually pretty offensive. But let's be clear, the gospel is offensive. The gospel offends our logic and our sensibilities because in the gospel we have to actually believe that we're so selfish, so broken, so sinful, so wicked, so often making ourselves our own God, making our own decisions, exercising our own freedom, and operating as slaves to everything but God, that the God of the universe had to actually die to purchase us out of that slave market. That's offensive, but it's also true. So that leads us to this question, what is your lead lens? as you're interacting with people, as you're interacting with the culture, as you're making decisions, what fluently comes out of you. Maybe it's what benefits you or what makes your life easier. Maybe it's what feels good or what looks good. Maybe it's the freedoms that you've come to enjoy. Maybe it's the constitution but what if it is the fact that you are on a trajectory towards rebellion of the most high God, completely separated from him because you were going your own way, but God in his grace allowed you to hear and believe that Jesus died for you and gave you the invitation into the family of God, not because of anything that you've ever done, but only because of his grace. You see, if there's redemption from the slave market, then we owe no one anything so we can be generous with our love. If there was reconciliation to God, then every wall of hostility that we've put up between us and people can be destroyed. And we can love ferociously across what used to be a barrier. When there's forgiveness from sin, then we can turn around and forgive for free no matter what's been done. Because through the lens of gospel fluency, everything changes. So how do we grow in gospel fluency? You have to be immersed in it. Just like learning a language, you have to speak it and practice it and have a native speaker correct you and have a native speaker speak it to you. And that's what we wanna be here at the chapel. That's why we keep talking about joining a group because life change happens not in rows, not on a screen, but in circles with people speaking the gospel over each other. That's why we're starting a new series this next week called What You Need to Know so that we can grow in our understanding of who God is and what he's done and what matters most and what is most essential so that we can put that into our lens as we walk through life. Invite a friend to join you next week and join us on site even so that we can start this series together. This is also why we're hosting the Live Sent conference november 5th and 6th because we don't just want our gospel fluency to affect our campus and our city but we want this to affect our whole world and we want to figure out how we together as a church can let the gospel go to the places that have never heard of jesus before we also want to be a place where you can discover the gospel for the first time maybe you haven't heard the gospel like this before if that's you redemption reconciliation forgiveness, they're available today. doesn't matter if you're a runaway. It doesn't matter if there was hostility. It doesn't matter what it costs. Jesus laid down his life for you. He's already done the work. All you have to do is repent. Churchy word, that just means turn away from being the leader of your own life and turn away from the evil things in your heart and accept the invitation to trust Jesus today, to say yes to that invitation. You just have to accept and receive what Jesus has already done. And then join us as we grow in gospel fluency together, as we speak the gospel over each other, as we practice living in light of the gospel. And when we begin to do that in the midst of a culture that has turned its back on the gospel, the world will take notice. And as we do, we'll see people meet, know, and follow Jesus on the campus, in the city, and around the world. So let me pray for us. God, we're so grateful for Jesus. We're so grateful that when we were freezing and hungry and dirty in the slave market, you saw us. You died the death that we deserved. You redeemed us, you reconciled us, you forgave us. You transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your son not because of anything that we've ever done. Let that gospel truth, that gospel reality be what shapes this church, be what shapes our families and our jobs, the people we interact with, the decisions we make. And as you do that in our midst, God, would you let this world change because nothing can change the world like the gospel of Jesus. So would you increase our fluency together In Jesus' name, amen. Again, tune in next week or join us on site for our next series, What You Need to Know. It's gonna be great growing in gospel fluency through that series together. Have a great day.